70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Hola, me llamo Santiago Incapié. Soy colombiano y llevo viviendo en Corea seis años. Hello, my name is Santiago Hincapié from Colombia. I've been living in Korea for six years. My friend introduced me to KBS World Radio three years ago, and I've been tuning into its Spanish service ever since. KBS World Radio is my favorite source of news and information about Korea. It provides various content in entertainment packages with balanced point of views, helping listeners understand various social issues and Korean culture from the Korean perspective. I want to listen to more programs on Korea's culture and tradition, for example, things like how the lunar calendar works. KBS World Radio brings Korea's voice to the world. Happy 70th birthday. I wish the channel more success and hope you stay a friend and family for all international residents in Korea. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Tuesday, the 5th of December, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-wook. The government has announced plans to overhaul the nation's mental health policies in an effort to curb the suicide rate, which is the highest among OECD nations. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Tensions on the Korean Peninsula have been ramping up after North Korea said it would scrap the inter-Korean military agreement and restored guard posts along the border. We'll assess the gravity of the situation for our in-depth today. And coming up for Touch Place in Seoul, we'll be meeting Korean-American writer Chang Rae Lee, who has just had his work, My Year Abroad, published in Korean. Let's begin, Korea 24. The government has announced a set of measures to tackle South Korea's notoriously high suicide rate. President Yoon sung yeol said mental health issues will no longer be left for individuals to tackle uh, on their own and instead handed, handled as a key national agenda by providing psychological counselling to one million people by the end of 2027. The country aims to lower the suicide rate by half in the next 10 years. For this and other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service, Kim In-kyung. In-kyung, hello. Hello, Chang. Yes, so South Korea has the unfortunate reputation of having the highest suicide rate among OECD members. It's stood at 25.2 per 100,000 people as of last year. So today, the government unveiled policies aimed at halving that rate in the next 10 years. Can you tell us what some of those measures are? 
Sure, currently South Korea's mental health policy is centered on treatment, but the government's plan is to cover the whole process from prevention to recovery. To do this, the government plans to provide psychological counseling to one million people during Yoon's term. The government will start by providing counseling to 80,000 medium and high-risk people next year, including those who try to take their own life, their family members, as well as those regarded to be in need of intervention in mental health by medical or welfare institutions. With the effort, the government is aiming to mark up the use of mental health services from 12.1% in 2021 to 24% by 2030. I understand that there were more policies unveiled specifically targeting young people as well. Sure. The government will provide regular mental health checkups for young adults between the ages of 20 and 34 every two years instead of 10 years and include not only depression but also schizophrenia and bipolar among disorders subject to the checkups. Starting from next July, the government will also make suicide prevention education mandatory. Alongside the announcement, President Yun presided over a meeting on mental health attended by government officials as well as counsellors and psychiatrists. What did he have to say? He promised to build a system which would allow office workers to easily get professional counselling in the workplace and students in schools or their communities. He said he will set up a committee under the presidential office that will be charged with discovering and planning new policies on mental health. The president said that despite its high economic level, South Korea ranks first in suicide and places at the bottom in happiness indices, adding that many people avoid getting treatment and almost no investment on the national level is made toward mental health. Yes, hopefully this can be a turning point in the nation's battle against suicide. Let's shift now to the National Assembly, where the two-day confirmation hearing for Supreme Court Chief Justice nominee Cho Hide began today, Tuesday. Can you tell us about some of the proceedings and the points of contention between the rival parties? Well, Joy is considered a safe pick after the National Assembly voted down the nomina- nomination of Lee Kuan in October over allegations of an asset declaration omission and gender insensitivity. That was the first rejection of a top court chief justice nominee in 35 years. So far, Joe has remained unburdened by past controversy, but the confirmation hearing may focus on the limitation imposed by his age, as he will reach the retirement age of 70 before the end of his six-year term. Born in 1957, the veteran judge served as a Supreme Court justice for six years from 2014 to 2020, gaining a reputation as a conservative judge who wrote dissenting opinions in many major cases. What were some of the questions that lawmakers asked today? The People Power Party addressed the issue of delayed trials as it criticized former Supreme Court Chief Justice Kim Myung-soo for causing the problem and called on Joe to normalize the judiciary. The PPP also stressed the need to eliminate distrust in the judicial system due to political bias. The Democratic Party asked the nominee for his opinion on the issuance of search and seizure warrants related to Party Chief Lee Jae-myung, including the prosecution's raid of Gyeonggi provincial government offices on Monday, over allegations that he condoned the illicit use of a provincial corporate credit card by his wife during his term as Gyeonggi governor. The DP also asked whether it's right to conduct multiple raids on the same subject. Turning to economic news now, the latest monthly inflation data was released today. What did it reveal? 
Consumer prices grew at a slower pace in November due to a drop in the price of petroleum products. According to Statistics Korea, the country's consumer price index stood at 112.74 in November, up 3.3 percent from a year earlier. This is after growing 3.4 percent in August, 3.7 percent in September and 3.8 percent in October, although it is still more than the 2.3 percent in July. The bad news is that prices of fresh food products soared 12.7 percent, expanding by the fastest pace in 14 months. Have you noticed that apples are really expensive these days? Mm. Apple prices climbed more than 55 percent, cucumbers 40 percent, and scallions by 39 percent. Yes, so the pinch is really being felt, particularly at the grocery store, it seems. And finally, President Yoon nominated former Senior Presidential Secretary of Economic Affairs Che Sang-mok as the new finance minister on Monday. He spoke to the press today. What did he have to say about the nation's economy? In a meeting with reporters on Tuesday, the nominee referred to the current economic situation as the last cold snap. As for high inflation, the nominee expected that it will take some time for prices to stabilize, calling for efforts to lower expected upward pressure and push for structural reforms. Chair pledged to thoroughly manage potential risks while focusing on curbing prices and expanding recovery momentum, stabilizing public livelihoods. That's where we're going to wrap it up for our news briefing today. In Young, thank you for bringing us those updates. Thank you. A physical clash and war have become just a matter of time on the Korean Peninsula. That was the ominous warning North Korea issued over the weekend, blaming South Korea for the scrapping of the 2018 inter-Korean military agreement aimed at easing cross-border tensions. The North went on to threaten the South that it will face total collapse if it undertakes any hostile acts. These strong words come amid escalating tensions between the two Koreas. Pyongyang scrapped the agreement last month after Seoul suspended part of the deal, which was in protest of the North's successful launch of a military spy satellite. The reclusive state has since restored guard posts and placed heavy firearms along the border. To get some expert analysis on the current situation and the future prospects, of inter-Korean relations. We're joined by Sydney Seiler, Senior Advisor with the Centre for Strategic and International Studies Korea Chair. He is also a former National Intelligence Officer for North Korea with the US National Security Council. He joins us via video today. Mr Seiler, hello and thank you for your time today. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I look forward to the discussion. First off, can we start with your general assessment of the current state of inter-Korean relations. What do you make of it? Well, I think for, you know, first time or listeners to, to at least my little spiel or take on the peninsula, you know, I my first tour in Korea was as a military intelligence uh, official looking at the, the threat in, in 1982. So I was there in 1982 to 1987 Again, in 1989 to 1993, uh, again, uh, you know, 1999 to 2002, and then most recently, uh, 2016 to 2020. So I've been able to look at the North Korea threat uh, both on the peninsula while stationed there, well, in the, off, the other years being back here, 
And so as I look at the situation today, I would describe it as poor, but not unprecedentedly so. We don't see a, a level of, of tension or threats that are unprecedented or, or uh, a cause for excessive concern at this point, rather just a, minder, uh, a, a reminder of the more strategic dimensions of a peninsula in which the DPRK feels that they can manipulate tensions or raise tensions through rhetoric, through actions, uh, that they aren't interested in the sustained improvement of the situation on the ground, so that advances such as the CMA may, may have uh, reflected back in the, the Comprehensive Military Agreement, might have reflected back in 2018. They come and they go, uh, and life goes on. So I'm somewhat... Uh, uh, reluctant to say that we're in a very dangerous position on the peninsula, but it's certainly one that requires close attention. Right. So you have decades of experience and observations of the situation on the Korean peninsula. And from that uh, knowledge, you're saying it's not uh, too dangerous, not unprecedented, uh, but we need to keep an eye on the situation. Uh, the latest development, of course, is the fact that North Korea has recently announced that it will no longer be restrained by the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Agreement. Uh, the announcement came after South Korea partially suspended the deal as well and restored air surveillance and reconnaissance activities. That was, of course, in response to the North's military spy satellite launch. Uh, can you explain a bit for our listeners more about what the 2018 Inter-Korean Military Agreement was? Well, the, the, also known as the Comprehensive Military Agreement, uh, the agreement consisted, I think, of three broad areas. One, aspirational boilerplate language about the two Koreas committing to not committing hostile actions against each other, to easing tension, to building a lasting and stable peace, uh, to consult and talk. It's, it's the type of language that normally you see when there's a thawing of relations, when North Korea is in one of its charm offensives, and you know whether it's the high-level talks in 91 and 92, the Kim Dae-jung, Kim Jong-il uh, summit, and subsequent rapprochement in that 2000 time period, uh, or you know even uh, some of the progress made uh, toward the end of the Nomyeon period, these are not uh, you know this this is kind of that broad language of uh, the two Koreas commit to refraining from hostility. The second dimension is what one might call building block provision. These are areas that if you look at the CMA as a test of what confidence building measures might look like should North Korea choose to go down this path, there was in the CMA laid out uh, possibilities such as a peace zone on the West Sea, an inter-Korean joint military committee, some phased arms reduction, things that could have matured into a, a more meaningful advance, more meaningful and sustained advancement uh, in inter-Korean relations and a reduction in tension on the peninsula. Then you had the concrete steps that were the headline-grabbing actions, the demilitarization of the joint security area, the dismantlement of a fraction of the guard posts, both on north and south side, uh, 11 each, uh, that uh, kind of serve as kind of the eyes and ears for both sides of the actions within the proximity of the DMZ. Uh, some of the limitations on air, naval, and, and ground training. Some of the no-fly zones, which became a bit controversial because of the limitations it put on, on Republic of Korea intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance. Uh, and so these are some of the areas where, at the time, there was a, a lot of hype around them. 
at the end of the day, their 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 relevance and and their impact were really didn't have much to do with the tension on the peninsula because they were relatively low hanging fruit. Some of the easier easier uh, kind of be, you know mm. baby steps towards more meaningful confidential right. uh, build confidential building me- uh, build, measure building. Yes. With that in mind, then, how effective was it in tamping down tensions on the peninsula, do you think? Well, that's it's really hard to say, because when you look at the peninsula, first of all, we have an armistice, which has served pretty well. Uh, criticism of it aside, pointing out it's not a permanent peace. Nevertheless, it has maintained sufficient peace to allow for the prosperity, not just the Republic of Korea, but for Northeast Asia writ large, the armistice works. And we've gone through periods of a lack of tension when the DPRK otherwise isn't engaged in some type of uh, provocative cycle uh, without the CMA. So ascribing the positive environment in 2018 to the CMA uh, or the deterioration of it to the uh, atrophy of the CMA probably gets the causality wrong. The CMA was a result of a thawing of relations, uh, largely driven, uh, built around the Olympics, uh, the Pyeongchang Olympics at that time, part of a longer range, uh, longer cycle, uh, charm offensive of Kim Jong-un, which kind of petered out towards the end of 28 and 2019. Uh, it, re- it represented a, an improvement relations of that, that, that time, but did not cause that improvement. Likewise, its deterioration now is a result of a deterioration of those relations mm. between the two Koreas. Not the, that deterioration is not the result of the CMA uh, weakening. So South Korea has partially suspended the deal uh, and restarted aerial reconnaissance of the border. North Korea has said it will no longer abide by the deal at all, and they've reinstated guard posts, they've uh, heavy weaponry uh, along the border, and there's even uh, uh, firearms have been brought into the uh, joint security area. Does this mean that the deal is effectively over and it's dead? And does that concern you at all? Well, first of all, I think the Republic of Korea leadership's decision to to, uh, to nullify part of the CMA, which was most detrimental, particularly in light of, of the advancements, any advancements that the satellite launch by North Korea may have to their own surveillance and reconnaissance capabilities in, in terms of a uh, in-kind proportional response with, with very practical uh, ramifications. I thought the move was a, a, a brilliant move on the Republic of Korea's part. Uh, North Korea's, you know, willingness to uh, abrogate the entire uh, CMA or threaten its abrogation is uh, not particularly surprising. And, and again, I don't feel that if there's anything to worry about on the Korean Peninsula in terms of heightened tensions, I think experts should turn their attention away from the CMA because there's nothing magical either about the CMA itself or its constituent steps that were implemented that would now be rolled back. The, 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 the reconstruction of 10, as an example, the reconstruction of 10 North Korean guard posts along the DMZ pales in comparison to the threat posed by a growing short, medium, intermediate, intercontinental uh, ballistic missile package with uh, increasing numbers of nuclear weapons. So 
Well, it's disappointing, and, and, and there are areas that certainly rearming uh, you know, soldiers in the joint security area is going to be a very uh, touchy situation. Imagine how that's going to impact tour groups going forward in terms of the possibility that some type of incident during a tour might spark some type of exchange of fire. We've seen it in the past. Uh, the fact that we might see it in the future, of course, that likelihood climbs a little bit when you have armed North Korean troops in the DMZ as, mm. as a joint security area as opposed to before. So there is some some increased room for tension there. Uh, but that's not the fundamental threat that's posed by North Korea that we need to be worried about uh, in, in terms of just the CMA. Right. In an interview with uh, Radio Free Asia that you did recently as well, you said something similar. You characterized uh, North Korea's move to restore frontline guard posts uh, as symbolic and attributed the instability on the peninsula more to Pyongyang's nuclear uh, arms developments. Can you elaborate a bit more on that thought for us as well? Well, certainly. I mean, when we look at North Korea, it's it's an interesting uh, threat in terms of uh, it's standing conventional posture, one of the world's largest uh, militaries in the Korean People's Army, uh, a, a, a military where uh, quantity has a quality all of its own. We know that, you know, it's, it's not state-of-the-art in all of its equipment, either aircraft or even uh, mechanized equipment, ground equipment, uh, or its Navy. But nevertheless, it's a large force that poses a, a standing uh, threat to the to the Republic of Korea, uh, the deployment of long range artillery that can hold the Greater Seoul metropolitan area at risk, you know, predating even the nuclear threat posed to South Korea by North Korean nuclear weapons. Uh, the long range artillery essentially holds uh, millions of people in in the Greater Seoul metropolitan area hostage uh, in, in terms of its ability to range. Uh, and, and inflict high numbers of casualties in the opening days of any conflict. And then we do have, of course, the expansion of North Korea's ballistic missiles, particularly since 2019. Uh, when you think about the history of the, the nuclear and, and ballistic missile program, clearly if, if 2016 and 2017 were the years of proving or attempting to prove the ability to hit the United States with long-range missiles, and we saw the intercontinental ballistic missiles and and a range of other uh, submarine-launched ballistic missiles, et cetera, at that time. 2019 onward, the focus has been on capabilities and rhetoric to support the argument that now North Korea dominates the peninsula and mm. can hold targets throughout South Korea at risk to its nuclear strikes. You know, these are the, when, when I worry about, you know, conflict on the Korean peninsula, you know, I, I remember what the Chunam sinking was like. I was there when the Burma bomb blast took place in 1983. Uh, you know, mm. the Yunpyeong-do shelling. You see all these incidents. They're all regrettable, but they're all de-escalatable because they're all limited objective, you know, for specific uh, purposes, narrow in focus. The, the, the broader threat that's being posed by North Korea and whether it moves into a, a more revisionist posture towards the South, seeking to redefine the balance of power in the peninsula, break the USROK alliance. This is the type of scenario around which, you know, I've been more focused on of late, because I really do think that going forward, this is going to be the question, this is going to be the challenge faced by uh, ROK and U.S. Uh, warfighters right. and policymakers. 
Well, on that note, North Korea has also said uh, that uh, it will look to take uh, steps. I understand that uh, you also said in a previous interview as well that uh, North Korea could conduct a fatal provocation against South Korea next year in a bid to undermine the Yoon Sung-yeol government's policy uh, on the North. What kind of provocation are you referring to? Well, you know, in in the uh, national intelligence estimate that the uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence issued shortly before I retired from the position, and it was declassified and released sometime around July this year, it examines some of the options, uh, nuclear use scenarios. It said it's a time frame 2030 outward, but we can imagine some of the preparation being taken place today. Scenarios that uh, North Korea's growing nuclear arsenal may bring into play uh, for Kim Jong-un to achieve large political, economic, and military gains on the peninsula uh, using its nuclear force, either using it uh, as a mere threat or actually using it. And we looked at you know, coercive actions that would seek to you know, drive a wedge in the U.S. ROK relationship by uh, introducing a sudden surge in, in uh, hmm. uh, tensions on the peninsula where there'd be some type of angst over the proper level of response and how to not appear escalatory. Uh, that, you know, it could, as if you think back, I remember vividly the, the Chun, the Chun I'm thinking, the Yangpyeongdo shelling. Uh, and, and I remember I was one of the first officials to visit China after the sinking of the Chunan. And, you know, the, the story that you would hear from uh, Chinese experts on the peninsula is that the Chunanam sinking was a result of hardline uh, policy of the Imyeongbok administration. I said, well, remember, the Imyeongbok administration is figuring out how to deal with the Taepodong launch and the, and the, and the third nuclear test uh, that took place in uh, 2009. Uh, a second, I'm sorry, second nuclear test. Uh, they're having to deal with this in, in this growing North Korea threat. The hardline policy of the Republic of Korea was a result of North Korea's actions. But if you remember the debate at that time over the policy, uh, this is exactly what Pyongyang was trying to do, to foment South-South uh, tension and, and conflict uh, mm. and argument domestically in the Republic of Korea about its North Korea policy, and also kind of putting pressure on the U.S., to distance itself, that, to show that there's a cost to be paid for having a, a hardline North Korea policy. This has been North Korea's standard uh, MO for, for years. And, and when you look at where we are in this administration, uh, it has shown an, an unwillingness to surrender to North Korea's coercive threats uh, and, and actions. And it has uh, left the door open to diplomacy, mm. uh, just as... The Biden right. administration has. I, I think a sincere opening uh, for diplomacy, of course, Pyongyang's total disinterest in responding e to either President Yoon's or President Biden's overtures are, is well established at this point. Uh, but these are the types of objectives that Kim might seek to gain. And, I, you know, also, as you look at right. uh, global developments and Kim feel, feeling perhaps encouraged that uh, Beijing and Moscow would be more tolerant. Mm of more aggressive behavior that even in Moscow's case, they might appreciate uh, North Korea being a, a, a thorn in the side of the United States by mm. returning to some type of escalatory action that would, with our commitments of forces globally right now, right. would leave us struggling, perhaps, 
uh, this could be an opportune time for Kim to act. Well, it's been very interesting to get your thoughts today. Just to wrap up, we're almost out of time. Uh, how do you suggest South Korea deal with North Korea from here on out? There are a lot of concerns about the tensions uh, rising. What can be done to ensure that they don't escalate too far? That's a great question. First of all, I think there needs to be clarity about the threat. North Korea is great at manipulating the rhetoric and sowing a sense of crisis and imminent uh, uh, outbreak of hostilities as uh, in part a way for us to to put pressure on us to uh, back off of of key elements of our pressure uh, strategy on North Korea, given its uh, nuclear weapons. So I think being clear about the actual threat and and, uh, establishing clear deterrence goals to respond to those. Uh, I never like to take uh, too much comfort in saying that a certain policy has succeeded in realms of deterrence because often we don't know why Mm. the actions we take or if the actions we take have an impact. But what's clear is that for, you know, several years now, North Korea is not engaged in a lethal and kinetic uh, provocation because, uh, you know, the leadership in the Republic of Korea has made clear the price to be paid. And so, you know, in this regard, deterrence uh, remains the goal. And, you know, this is both deterrence of the w- on the WMD side and deterrence in the provocation conventional realm. And here the strength of the alliance, USROK, cannot be overemphasized because we are in this fight together. Uh, and the DPRK is best deterred when they see no gap between the U.S. and the Republic of Korea. We'll have to leave it there. We've been speaking to Sydney Siler. We appreciate your time today, Mr. Siler. Thank you very much for the invitation again. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index lost 20.67 points, or 0.82% on Tuesday, to close at 2,494.28. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, shedding 15.14 points, or 1.83%, to close at 813.38. On the foreign exchange, the local currency weakened, 7.2 won against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,311.21. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's our daily segment now, Korea Trending. Here we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online, and we do that with the help of our contributor, Diane Yu, today. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, jang So what do you have for us first? Many countries around the world have been recently seeing an increase in reported cases of pneumonia in children linked to a bacteria called Mycoplasma pneumoniae, raising the alarm for the health authorities. And South Korea is no different. The number of patients infected by Mycoplasma in Korea has been increasing rapidly for the past two months, accounting for 96% of children with bacterial pneumonia. The bigger problem is that there are more patients with serious symptoms than before. Yes, this is something that is alarming a lot of people, especially parents at the moment. Can you first walk us through 
what uh, mycoplasma pneumoniae is exactly? Of course, mycoplasma pneumonia is caused by a bacterium that can spread through saliva when an infected person coughs or sneezes. Once the bacterium travels to the lungs, people may develop pneumonia, and symptoms can last for about three to four weeks. Because of that risk, it's set as a class four infectious disease in Korea under the Infectious Disease Control and Prevention Act, which requires sentinel surveillance to investigate whether it could become an epidemic. And this bacteria tends to cause pneumonia outbreaks every three to four years in the country, mainly affecting people aged five to nine. As you mentioned, other countries around the world are seeing this issue, the Mm -hmm. most notable being China, Mm -hmm. where the surge has attracted global attention after everything that happened with COVID-19, of course. And Mm -hmm. experts have been trying to find out why this new surge has occurred, right? Right. So experts believe that the reason the bacterium has become more virulent is because they have become resistant to antibiotics. If this is true, then things can become a lot worse in the future. That's because a study at Ohio University in the United States found that if resistance develops, the risk of a patient being admitted to the intensive care unit due to severe symptoms is five times higher. A study at Seoul National University Hospital found that the ratio of patients with mycoplasma showing resistance to antibiotics increased to 78.5%. Due to the severity of the situation, the Korea Disease Control and Prevention Agency said last week that it held an emergency meeting with the World Health Organization about the situation and announced that it's preparing measures for controlling the surge in the nation. Unfortunately, there is no vaccine for this disease either. Mm. Thankfully, it is a disease that most recover from without long-term complications given time, although I'm sure it'll be hard to watch uh, for parents especially. But the best action is prevention. Mm. Like with COVID, wash your hands, uh, consider wearing masks if possible as well, and cover your mouth when sneezing to try and prevent any further potential spread as well. Right. Let's continue on to our second story now. What do you have for us? Legendary football manager Kim Ak-bom has returned to the K-League One for the first time in six years after taking on the role as the new head coach of Jeju United FC. The football club officially announced on Tuesday that Kim will lead the team as its 17th coach. Yes, this is big news because Coach Kim is well known to Korean fans because he has quite a CV, right? Right. The 63-year-old coach has proven his leadership uh, as a manager over the years. He was highly praised for coaching various clubs both at home and overseas. They include Songnam FC, China's Henan FC, and Gwangju FC. In particular, his work with South Korea's national under-23 football team will be most known to fans of Korean football. In 2018, Coach Kim was able to bring home the gold medal at the 2018 Jakarta Palembang Asian Games, the team was able to win the 2020 AFC U23 Championship under Kim as well. The 63-year-old coach stepped down from that role after Korea failed to make it past the quarterfinals of the 2020 Summer Olympics. 
So what has the coach been doing uh, between then and now? Well, one of the coach's many positive characteristics is that he spares no effort in self-development. While taking a break, he visited South America and Europe to read the trends of world football and to learn advanced football firsthand. That's how he got his nickname, Hakbom Sin, which is a compound name of Kim Hakbom and former Manchester United manager Alex Ferguson for his excellent team <laughs> management and strategy. That's quite a nickname mm. uh, indeed. I'm sure Jeju must be excited to have him on board. What did the club say about having uh, Kim as its coach? The club said that coach Kim showed great leadership with football players under the age of 23 by showing trust in them and understanding their needs and added that his talent will help Jeju United reach its potential. Coach Kim also showed his great enthusiasm towards taking over the team. He said that he will do his best to instill confidence in the players and promised to work on building rapport with them to bring out the best results. Yes, Jeju threatened to flirt with relegation this year, so I'm sure the team and the fans will be hoping that he can inspire the team to do better next year. Uh, we'll see how he fares. Yeah. Moving on to our last story, what else has been trending? Well, this story will break the hearts of fans of the South Korean mega-hit boy band BTS. On Tuesday, BTS agency Big Hit Music released an official notice regarding the military enlistment plans of its members RM, Jimin, V, and Jungkook. Through Reverse, an official online fan community where fans and artists interact, the agency said RM and V will be enlisting according to their own procedures, while Jimin and Jungkook are scheduled to enlist together. And according to the music industry, RM and V will enlist on December 11th and Jimin and Jungkook will enlist on December 12th. Yes, this will be heartbreaking news for many fans, as you said. <laughs> right. And like the other members, the agency asked the fans not to come to the entrance ceremony, right? Correct. To begin with, the agency announced that there will be no official event on the day of the members' entry and highlighted that the ceremony is only for military personnel and their families. Okay, so with these four enlisting in December, that means all members of BTS will be serving in the military by the end of the year. Unfortunately, that's right. The team's eldest member, Jin, born in 1992, is serving in the Yeonchan Army in Gyeonggi Province after enlisting as an active duty soldier in December last year. J-Hope, born in 1994, enlisted in April and is continuing his military service in Wonju City, Gangwon Province. And Suga entered the military on September 22nd and is serving as a social services worker after completing basic military training. There's a, they're expected to make a comeback altogether after June 2000. 25, but the exact time has not been specified. Right. As sad as it will be to see all the members go now, it does mean that we are that much closer to their comeback in 2025 <laughs> right. as well. Mm. I guess that's the glass half full way to think about things. <laughs> yes. I'm sure the fans will be counting down the days now. That's where we're going to leave it for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Chang Re Lee is a Korean-American author known for his insightful explorations of identity, cultural displacement, and the immigrant experience in America. He rose to stardom with his debut novel, Native Speaker, in 1995, for which he received the Penn Hemingway Award for a debut novel. 
He's also acclaimed for his other novels, such as A Gesture Life, Aloft, and On Such a Full Sea. And now the Korean translation of his latest novel, his most recent novel, My Year Abroad, has hit the bookshelves here in Korea. So to tell us about his work and his new book, Professor Yi joins us via video call for this week's Touch Base in Seoul. Professor, hello and welcome to the show. Uh, hello, uh, nice to be here. So yes, as we said, the Korean translation of uh, My Year Abroad has been published here in South Korea now. How do you feel? Well, I'm always excited about uh, my work being translated into Korean. I think um, even though I, a lot of Korean readers read my books in the original English, um, it uh, it's an extra special feeling to know that that uh, Korean speakers can can interact with the story, uh, you know, in their in their most comfortable language. <laughs> do you get feedback then from Korean readers uh, about your books? I do. Uh, I get a lot of emails um, from uh, both uh, older readers and also students. Uh, so it's uh, you know a, a range of questions about my work uh, for just their personal curiosity, sometimes for academic reasons, uh, research. Uh, so, it's, so it's always very, very uh, fulfilling for me to, to know that um, there, there are lots of readers in Korea for my work. Now, on this segment, we like to uh, explore a bit more about the origins of our guests, how they got started in their field. So tell us, how did you become a writer in the first place? Oh, well, I think it's uh, the usual story. I mean, nothing special. I was, as a school kid, I was always reading. I uh, I loved literature. Uh, and at some point, I think with most readers, they they have this maybe inkling that they could perhaps write some of this material themselves. <laughs> And give someone else that that same uh, set of feelings and uh, emotions about about life in the world. And so I started writing in high school. I I wrote a little bit in college, mostly mostly though just was a student of literature during in college. Uh, and then afterwards, uh, I after a brief time working on Wall Street uh, at a financial firm, I quit that job to to try to write and. Uh, I ended up going to graduate school right, uh, but that last and point, publishing my first novel. That last point fascinated me, that you were on Wall Street. Uh, you worked in finance for a while, but then uh, you gave all that up to become a writer. That must have been quite a, quite a decision to make. It was, uh, particularly back then. This was in the, you know, in the late 80s. Um, I, I didn't really have many models for myself. Uh, as a as a, a working novelist and but i but i felt as if i had to give it a chance you know i was i was only 22 years old and and i I'd, I'd once read um, an interview with uh john updike who said that he had also the same kind of quandary with his parents uh they wondered why he was going to try to become a novelist and he said that uh well i don't know if i can become a novelist but i'll give it 5 years and see what happens and and I sort of said the same thing to my folks <laughs> um, because, I, you know, I, listen, I I was realistic about it. It's like any uh, pursuit of the arts. Um, 
it's in in our society in our civilization uh unfortunately it's 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 a very difficult thing to to do and particularly to make a a life out of mm. so uh, i feel i've been very lucky your books their focus is not necessarily on korean characters or settings per se but they resonate with themes of cultural identity and the immigrant experience how does your background and your uh, identity as a korean american how has that affected uh, your work do you think well certainly my my experience as uh, growing up in an immigrant family um, uh, and i think i have a lot in common with uh, Im- other immigrant writers in america who's from different you know national backgrounds uh you know the sense of being uh, a little distanced from from the culture uh looking out from the outside in at the culture um feeling as if you belong in some areas and some regards and and in others you never will um i think that's uh goes a, a lot towards what built my perspective about about the culture about about how people live within that culture how they engage with that culture mm. and try to make a life within it uh the korean aspect to it of course is particular to me and and something that i you know didn't really think about in terms of you know trying to present something quote unquote korean um i've always i've always said that my Koreanness, I'm sure, as we all know, you know, we we all have our individual Koreanness, especially those of us who are Korean American. Uh, we come from, you know, we've grown up in different places, with different in different family settings. Obviously, there's a a, a baseline of of cultural uh, tradition and, and cultural uh, influences, but but how we take those influences and how we run with them uh, are all different. Uh that said again I I val- so val- so much value my Koreanness. Um and when I was younger of course uh, I always had to explain my Koreanness to people. Uh, <laughs> they didn't understand what that was. You know, they knew what Japanese people, you know, Japanese culture was or Chinese culture was. They had no sense of Korean culture or Korean people and of course in the last uh 10 to 15 years that's changed quite a bit <laughs> around the world. Uh I could never have uh predicted how <laughs> how popular and and widespread uh korean things and koreanness has has become uh, it's it's quite startling uh, and wonderful indeed it's quite a time for uh korean culture at the moment uh let's talk a bit more about uh my year abroad can you introduce our listeners to the story what it's about uh, it was published originally in english in 2021 uh right Yes, published two years ago uh, here. Uh, I, it's a it's a quite a different novel for me. I think mainly because of the of who the hero is. He's a quite a young man, about twenty years old, taking a year off of college, uh, planning to do a typical year abroad in Europe or some other place in some academic program, but he ends up hooking up with um a local businessman who of chinese descent uh, an entrepreneur um and decides uh, to become his assistant 
and and to travel the world uh, on a in, in pursuit of a, vi- a business venture of course what happens in the course of it is a lot of wild and crazy uh, <laughs> exploits um some pretty serious travails both physically and psychically uh in some ways it's a novel of growing up mm. of coming of age but but i but i but i try to imbue the the hero his name is tiller uh and he's partly korean not he's only he calls himself just you know just a slice korean <laughs> uh i try to imbue him with um a, a, um perhaps a, a wiser heart if not a wiser head Mm. Um, it's, uh, maybe it's a, a coming of age novel told from the point of view of, um, someone who was my age in middle age <laughs> <laughs> and worried about, worried about, uh, you know, so larger issues of, of mortality and the body and, right. and what, and what we're doing in this world. It was the first book that you, uh, published in, uh, seven years. That's quite a, that's quite a gap. What inspired you to write this? You said that this was quite a, a departure for you as well. And I've read reviews that say uh, it was a chance for you to let loose. You talk about some of the wild and crazy exploits as well. Where did this come from? Where did this story come from? Well, I think it came from a yearning to get out of myself. You know, you know, as you know, I'm, uh, or I, I don't think you, I don't know if you mentioned, but I, I've taught all my life. I'm a professor at university and, and so I'm constantly surrounded by uh, 18 to 21-year-olds, <laughs> you know, and, and throughout the years I've been teaching for 30 years, I've only grown older and they stay the same age. <laughs> um, and I'm always fascinated by their energy, their outlook, their worries, and especially these days, young people seem to be so fraught um, with anxieties and pressures uh, that I think we put on them and so the book was partly my um, my response to their issues, and also my you know my ad- admiration and love for their exuberance and their energy. And and so it 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 became for me a quite a, a much larger book than I envisioned from the start, um, and um, and that's probably why it took me so long. <laughs> Right. So in one way, it's perhaps dedicated to your students. Uh, have they read the book? Have you forced them to read the book? And what has their reaction been? <laughs> no, you know, uh, we literature professors and creative writing professors don't uh, require our <laughs> books to be reading like economics professors. Uh, it's probably not a good financial move, but I, um, uh, I have gotten feedback from from younger people and my students in particular and they seem to to find it quite entertaining mm. uh, which is in in the end what i was hoping for you know an entertainment uh that would be also uh startling sometimes shocking um sometimes disturbing um but in the end you know uh emotional and 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 i and i hoped um some kind of you know respite from mm. this these these troubled times as you say you uh teach creative writing at currently at stanford university you taught at princeton as well some very prestigious schools there uh would you say you're a, a good teacher uh and how does your teaching <laughs> affect uh influence your writing as well do you think uh 
Uh, well, I, I think I'm, I think I'm a pretty good teacher. I, I, I think I get good feedback from my students. They seem to uh, enjoy my classes. I, I think it's, it's, um, for me, uh, what I get from my students and not so much about my writing, but I love the writing in particular, but I appreciate their energy and their enthusiasm and ambition for writing. Uh, the same kind of energy I, I know I had when I was that age mm. and in the early parts of my career. You know, being more settled now as a writer and um, and as also just as a person, I, I think it's, you know, just natural to have a different kind of um, approach to it. You know, a more sort of working man's approach where you're just doing your job day by day. And right. sometimes you forget about what you, you know, about the 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 romance of it i suppose you know mm. um and but uh, you know making up because making art is a difficult thing um but but it's also can be as my students know a glorious thing when when you do something that you feel is like hmm, something a little different and fresh okay we're almost out of time uh just as a final thought uh, what are your future plans as well is there uh, more works uh, that are ready to be published? Are you working on anything else? And do you have any plans also to uh, come to Korea at any point to uh, meet your fans here in Korea? Yeah, well, I, uh, I'm i almost finished with a new book, a short novel uh, that's partly autobiographical, uh, although it's not an autobiography. It's 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 mostly fictionalized, but it's, it's about a, a young Korean-American boy uh, growing up in New York City in the 1970s. Uh, so, so it's a, it's a, it's, it's as with all my work, it's both, uh, kind of familiar sounding, but also quite strange. <laughs> so, so, uh, I, I hope that that will be out next year or the year after, uh, you know, depending. And, uh, and I don't have plans, uh, right yet to come to Korea. I was there last year visiting family and, uh, but I always love my visits. Uh, I cherish them and. So I'm, I'm hoping to, to get back soon. Yes, I'm sure uh, your fans here would be eager to see you uh, soon as well. Uh, we'll wrap it up there. We've been talking to author Chang Rae Lee. Thank you once again for your time today. Thanks so much. And that is where we wrap up our show today. Uh, thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow to join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. 
If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio